Um, good morning. As Ben said, my name is David Nelson. Uh, like you just mentioned, I'm the pastoral resident at Trinity City Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, despite living and working in St. Paul, uh, this is an area of Minnesota that really does mean a lot to me, so it's great to be here. Uh, most notably, uh, on your drive-in down Minnetonka Boulevard, you might have seen Nelson's Meats Bakery Deli and Catering. Uh, it was always a mouthful. I heard a woo. Uh, I am a Nelson. So uh, my grandfather actually uh, started that business many, many years ago. Uh, my dad kept it running after my grandpa passed away. My dad ran it for uh, basically uh, all of my life, uh, 30, 30 years or so. Well, I'm not 30. I'm 27. I probably shouldn't name my age in front of you. Never mind. We're going to keep going. So, uh, so yeah, we, we, that was where I worked growing up and uh, just, just loved it there. And uh, unfortunately, uh, right after we moved, we were on Shady Oak Road in Hopkins, but what Right after we moved, my dad passed away from uh, cancer, so uh, we weren't able to enjoy the uh, Minnetonka Boulevard location as much as we would have hoped, but uh, we sold it to Keith, and Keith's done a, a tremendous job with the store. Uh, this is an area that also holds significance for me because I am a red knight. Do we have any benilled people in here? All right, first service was crawling with benilled people, so I don't, I don't know what to tell you, um, but... I, I'm a red knight, uh, as my ecology professor, teacher used to say, it's a great day to be a red knight. So uh, I graduated from there, I was the class of 2013, which if you're doing uh, math at home, that means in one year I'm going to celebrate my 10-year high school reunion, which is uh, both exciting and kind of scary because it's like, oh my gosh, 10 years has already passed. Um, I don't know about you, I'm not like a huge reunion guy, um, I think it's okay if you go, you know, they're, they're fun because like, you know, you get a chance to see all of the people who you once saw walking around the halls, you get to see how their lives turned out, you get to see uh, if they have kids, how their job's going, all the above, maybe you go to your high school reunion because you want to rekindle things with an old flame who might still be single, I don't know, but I think for a lot of us, we actually like to go to these high school reunions for one reason and one reason only, and that is to gloat. To gloat. G-L-O-A-T. We often like to go to these things because we get to show off to all of our doubters, all our haters, all our bullies, everybody who made our lives miserable, how awesome our life is now. We have this awesome job, we have this awesome house, we have this cool car. Uh, this also might be the reason you don't go to your high school reunion because you can't say these things. Um, but the other reason we might go is to show off our spouse. You know, so much of high school is who are you dating? Are you dating? Are you having sex? Who are you having sex with? So now that we have a spouse, we get to parade them around like a trophy and be like, see, look who I married. Who's going to die alone now? Who's U-G-L-Y? You ain't got no alibi now, Stacy. <laughs> that didn't happen to me, I promise. And that brings us up to something else, because it, it, we don't only go just to gloat, but I think in some sense we also go to do kind of the opposite, and that's to make sure that our bullies, our doubters, our haters ended up with a sad life. We don't want to see them be successful. And one of the ways that we evaluate oftentimes whether or not they had a successful life is whether or not they're married or whether they're dating. So if we go to that reunion and we see no ring, no spouse, no marriage, they're all alone, that brings us great joy. As if singleness is somehow a curse to be avoided at all costs. That's our default way of thinking about singleness. And whether we get it from our families or our friends, or God forbid we get it from the church, 
We view singleness as an issue that needs to be solved, and it needs to be solved quickly, at least before you're 35. But God speaks to us differently about singleness than the world does or our family does. The Bible speaks a far different word to us, and if you don't believe me, this is where we're going to be this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. That's the argument that Paul is going to make. This morning, he's going to say, singleness is not an inferior life to a married one. Rather, singleness is in fact a better life because the best life is one lived devoted to God and God alone. The best life, the fullest life, the most meaningful life is one lived completely devoted to God and God alone. And so that's where we're going to be going with our time today. So if you have a Bible, dig that out. There should be a couple in front of you. We're on page 956. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to be beginning our time in verse 25. Paul writes, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries... She has not sinned. Now, quickly, just a housekeeping thing you might be asking. What is the present distress that Paul's referencing there? Um, if we wrote 1 Corinthians in 2020, there'd be like eight or nine different present distresses that we could have been talking about. So what, what's Paul getting at here? And admittedly, uh, just cards on the table, most commentators are pretty not united on what he's talking about. Uh, some people think that he's talking about the worldliness that's going on in the Corinthian church, and that's distressful. Some people think that he's talking about um, the life in the world to come, and that's actually probably where most commentators land. This idea that um, Jesus is coming soon, and therefore that time in between his ascension and his second coming is stressful, and therefore we ought to remain in the situation we are in. But whatever conclusion, whatever meaning you find most compelling, what I want you to see from the jump, what Paul wants you to see from the jump is that marriage is a good thing. Okay, so I'm going to be bragging on singleness a lot here today, so don't hear any of this as some sort of slight against marriage. Getting married, pursuing marriage, dating, courting, whatever vernacular you want to use, those are all good things. Paul's going to affirm later in our text, you do well if you do them. The entire Bible affirms the goodness of marriage. Go to the Old Testament. The Bible begins with a wedding ceremony. Adam and Eve coming together. In fact, if you read through most of Genesis, most of Genesis is actually the patriarchs seeking their spouses. Think about the Song of Songs that Solomon wrote, saying that this is the, the peak. This is the Song of Songs, as he's writing about dating and marriage and sex. And we also see in the New Testament, marriage is, is held up and affirmed. Jesus' first miracle was healing Peter's mother-in-law. If you have a mother-in-law, you have a wife. Two chapters from now, Paul is going to say, am I not allowed, like the other apostles, such as Peter, to take a believing wife to be my spouse? Paul wrote Ephesians 5, saying that marriage is this beautiful image of Christ in the church, the husband laying down his life for his wife, and his wife in view of her husband's love, respecting her husband. And of course, we know that Revelation will end someday in a marriage ceremony. So nothing wrong with marriage. There's no issue with marriage. But Paul makes a really interesting comment in verse 27 that is not normal 
for us to hear. He says this. He says, are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. You ever show up to a family gathering and your Aunt Barb or Uncle Frank is talking to you and you're like, I'm still single. And they're like, oh, that's a good thing. Like you'd, be, you'd be offended, right? Well, pro- I mean, probably. You'd be like, well, why is it a good thing I'm single? What sort of things does that say about me? But, but that's, that's not the way that we think about singleness. We don't think of singleness as something to be pursued. And yet, Paul is going to make that argument to us. And, and part of the reason he does this, part of the reason he says this, is if you read the rest of verse 28, where he says, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you of them. So that's Paul's argument. He says, stay single because if you get married, you're going to have troubles. You're going to have anxieties. And if you don't believe me, single people, find literally any married person nearby and ask them if their life has more difficulty and trouble as a result of their marriage. And if they look at you and claim to be married and tell you that their life is totally fine, totally a breeze, please bring them to the pastors after the service because we have some church discipline to do because they are a liar. (laughs) All right? Marriage is hard. Just think about what marriage is. You are completely committing yourself, heart, mind, body, spirit, soul, physically, mentally, emotionally, to another human being. And both of you are fallen, and both of you can be really annoying at times. Your problems are going to become their problems. Their problems are going to become your problems. And believe me, you're going to fight about everything and anything for the rest of your lives. You snore. You take up too much of the bed. You stole the sheets last night. You're too warm to cuddle with. Your clothes are on the floor. You didn't help with the laundry. You left the light on. You left the sink running. Your hair clogs the drain. You leave your toiletries everywhere. You chew too loud. You burp. You fart. Did you get the mail? No, I didn't get the mail. Did you get the mail? No, why would I ask you if you got the mail if I was the one who had already gotten the mail? Well, I always get the mail, so maybe for once in your life you finally got the mail. Well, you know what? When I get the mail, I have to be the one to sort all through it, and I have to open up the ones that are addressed to you even. Oh, you know what? Mail is an archaic form of communication, and we should just defund the post office that's what you fight about that's married life that's not a personal example i promise but like that that, that's it and paul's saying single people you want this you want those troubles and anxieties and friends yeah it's it's funny but like those are all the dumb things you fight about those aren't even the real issues the real anxieties the real troubles that paul has in mind here And anxiety, like, how do you maintain this relationship for our entire lives? How do you keep the romance going, not just for five months, but five years? What do we do about the in-laws? Having kids is an issue. Kids are an issue. Might have sexual issues in your marriage. Might be wondering, is this fight going to lead to a divorce? might be wondering, is this health concern going to lead to my widowhood? And that's the thing. You're not, friends, you're not going to die probably in each other's arms like Noah and Allie in the notebook. You're basically signing up to be a widow at some point. And what God is saying to us through Paul is not that marriage or these things that we've discussed, these anxieties, that they're unimportant or that they don't matter, or that you should just not care about them. No, he's affirming them. He's saying they're real, and they hurt. And he's saying, I want you to be free 
from these anxieties, free from these troubles that can come up. A life free of those anxieties would be a better one. Paul continues his argument. He says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they uh, were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. When Paul says living as though you had no wife, he does not mean you neglect your spouse or you run off into adultery. So don't, don't hear that as what Paul is saying. And this passage is not some sort of nihilistic, nothing matters, everything is fleeting outlook on life. What this statement, what Paul's doing here is he's trying to get our eyes off of these present realities that are fleeting and onto the future realities that are coming. Compared with eternity, our experience here on earth is just a teeny, tiny speck of human history. And Paul is today zeroing in on marriage and reminding us, yes, even your married life is in fact fleeting. You'll be married for a long time, hopefully, here on earth. But remember, friends, Jesus said that they are neither married nor given in marriage in the new heavens and the new earth. So in a sense, your marriage is a worldly thing, Paul says. He says, are you rejoicing or are you weeping? We rejoice and we weep with you. But whatever is causing that weeping or rejoicing likely won't matter in 50 or 100 years. Are you rich or poor? You're not going to be boasting about either in the new heavens and the new earth when we're all rich because of the one who for our sake, though he was rich, became poor. What Paul is doing in these verses is he's trying to get our eyes off the present. That's what he's doing. And Paul is going to argue for us that getting married in this life, it won't damage your spiritual life, but it can very well dampen it. Not damage, dampen. That's the warning, and that's where he goes next. He says, friends, I want you to be free from anxieties. The married man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. And again, just because he uses the word worldly, it doesn't mean he's denigrating marriage. But those responsibilities, though they are good, that we have in marriage, can become a distraction to the things of the Lord. Paul's warning us that sometimes we become so distracted by pleasing our spouse that we push aside what should really be ultimate in our lives. What does he mean? Uh, Have you ever witnessed somebody try to spin plates? Um, Normally there's like a little wooden mechanism and there's rods coming up and you know, the guy gets up there and he dings the dinner plate showing it can break or whatever. And so he, he, he puts it on the rod and then he starts spinning the rod and the plate starts moving. And you're like, oh, that's amazing. And then he takes out another plate and he puts it on the other end and he's like, see, I'm spinning two plates. And then there's a third or fourth. And suddenly, before you know it, there's ten plates spinning at one time. But here's the thing. You got to watch all of those plates to make sure they don't fall. And that is very, very, very challenging. 
And what Paul is mentioning, what he's warning us about this morning, is he's, he's saying that your married life is going to have so many plates that it'll be easy to distract from the most important one. Now, what I'm about to do is a complete oversimplification of the single life, so don't hold it against me. But if you're single, you have the God plate spinning, you have the job plate spinning, you have the hobby plate that you're spinning, you have the friends plate that you're spinning, and probably your extended family plate. And those are the, the main concerns that you might have. Again, oversimplification. A married person, you're going to have the God plate, the job plate, the hobby plate, the friend plate, the spouse plate, the wedding planning plate, the in-law plate, the continued romance plate, the sex plate, the first kid plate, the first miscarriage plate, the second kid plate, the moving for someone's job plate, the finding new friends plate, the finding a new church plate, the second miscarriage plate, the third kid plate, the first kid preschool plate, and on and on and on and on and on to the point where you might go and become overwhelmed. And suddenly that God plate that at one point was so important, it was so the focus of your life, starts to wobble. And you don't even notice it starting to fall. And when it does, we have to hear the painful words of Jesus saying to us, you abandoned the love for me that you had at first. So Paul writes, he warns, he says, I say this for your own benefit. Not to lay a restraint on you. I'm not tying you to singleness. You, you can get married. But, but he says, I, I, I want to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. There's a good order to our lives, Paul says. There's a way that we ought to be ordering things in our lives. He says, God's got to be number one. Family, friends, hobby, job, all that, they're second at best. And so if you do get married, make sure of two things. One, you're ready for all those plates to start spinning. And two, that you marry somebody who is just as focused on that God plate as you are. And that's where Paul will go as we round out our text this morning. He says, if, anything, uh, if anyone thinks he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It's no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whomever she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment... In my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. So let's sum up. Paul is arguing in our text today that it's okay to get married. He says, you do well if you get married. But he says you'll do better if you remain single. Now, some might take issue with my words are Paul's words today and say, but if people don't get married, you're going to be depriving them of certain things in this life. How can anybody be happy that way? And that's where 
uh, I want to spend the rest of our time. So let me address three of those concerns that somebody might have. And this first one is actually true, because a calling to singleness is a calling as a Christian to live without sex. But people will say, how can you deprive somebody of sex? Someone would say, I want to have sex. Sex is a gift from God to be enjoyed in marriage, so I should get married. And that reason, Paul says, is justified. That's, that's what he means. He says, if his passions are strong, he should get married. Passions is not talking about food or his passion for football. Going back to that Song of Solomon book, every chapter ended with this phrase, Don't awaken love before it's time. Passions is needing to say that to yourself multiple times while you're dating. That's what he means by passions. And it's... I had a pastor who once made the joke, and uh, I don't know, I probably won't be invited back for making this joke, but um, I had a a pastor friend who made a joke once. He said, um, I start all my premarital... It was a joke, but he says he starts his premarital counseling sessions this way. He says, if you guys are here, going to get married, and you're not ready to rip each other's clothes off at the drop of a hat, then what are we even doing here? But that's the point that Paul is making. Friends, if you have strong desires for sex, you should get married, plain and simple. All right, we've talked about this the last couple of weeks. It's better to marry than to burn with passion. That's what Paul says. It says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. It's clear as crystal in Scripture. And, and I hammer this and, and labor this point because it's so odd to me that so many people, particularly guys, say, I have all these strong sexual desires and therefore it's a clear sign I shouldn't get married. But that's the opposite of what Paul is saying. Now, that doesn't negate the command to be self-controlled and upright until marriage, but a strong desire for sex is one of the signs you should get married. But maybe you're thinking about sex in a different way. Maybe, maybe you buy into this oft-repeated idea that sex is a basic human need. Now, I've not actually heard this argument in a while, and I think part of that has to do with the fact that we've kind of accepted asexuality as a, a real and prevalent part in our culture. But friends, you're not less than human if you don't have sex. You are still the same image bearer of God, whether you have sex or you remain a virgin. Jesus was the truest human being to ever live, and he never once had sex. He didn't have a wife, and yet he perfectly imaged God. You don't need sex to be a human being. Food is a basic human requirement. Water is a basic human requirement. You will die without either of them. You won't die if you don't have sex. So Paul says, whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his sexual desire under control, let him remain as he is. But maybe it's not the sex thing that you get held up on. Maybe you say, why are you telling people to not get married? Because they won't be able to have companionship in any other way. I want to have somebody with me, by my side, for the rest of my life, as my companion, and therefore I'm going to get married. But I have two two thoughts on that issue. The first one is the, the bad news, and that is there's no guarantee that your marriage will lead to companionship. Statistics haven't changed much. Half of all marriages end in divorce. 
Many marriages are so broken by either abuse or adultery or apathy that you feel isolated and alone even while married. And eventually, as we talked about, all marriages are going to end when the spouse dies. So basically, you are signing up to lose a companion. And you cannot look to marriage to fill that void. And in addition, especially when we as the church say this, when we say that marriage is the pathway to companionship, we are completely ignoring the beautiful God-given reality of friendship. Think about David and his relationship with, with Jonathan. Jonathan was the son of Saul and David was going to be the heir to the throne. They could have had a lot of tension between them, but they were best friends. David, as he's fleeing Saul, who's trying to kill him, says to Jonathan, he says, Your love to me, Jonathan, was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Now that's not, as some people like to pervert this text to say, saying that David and Jonathan were gay. If that's where your mind goes, it just shows you don't have a category for that level of friendship, and I feel sorry for you. David's looking at Jonathan and says, you loved me, cared for me, stood beside me, bore my burdens better than any of the women I had as wives. That's what David's saying. Are we friends like that as the church? Think about the book of Ruth. Just listen to these words. Just listen. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I'll be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Ruth is not talking to Boaz when she says that. She's talking to Naomi. She's talking to her mother-in-law. And at that point in time, Ruth had no idea she was going to get remarried. At that point, they're both widows in the darkness and despair of grief. And Ruth is telling Naomi, they're going to have to bury me next to you. That's how close we are. That's how close I'm going to be with you. We don't need a spouse to have companionship. When God created a people for himself, he did not put believers only right with God the judge, but he also put us right with one another. God created a spiritual family at the cross. You didn't get saved to get married, but you did get saved to be a friend of those within your church family. To be united to be to be united with these brothers and sisters, to love one another, to serve one another, to bear one another's burdens, to contribute to each other's needs, to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. That's your calling. The cross not only called you back to God, but to companionship with one another. God has gifted us companionship. Last thing, though. You might say, well, somebody needs to be married because if they're not married, they're not going to be happy or they're not going to be whole and fulfilled. Go back to verse 40. Paul says, The single person is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. You didn't notice I am married? But when I was single, this was a challenging verse. And I think it's a challenging verse not for maybe any of the words Paul is saying, other than the adjective that he uses to describe the single person, and that is 
happier. That's a hard word. And if you're wondering, it's not a translation issue. Almost every English translation translates it this way. It's going to say happier or it's going to say more blessed. It's the exact same word that Jesus uses when he's giving the Beatitudes. Basically, Paul's looking at us and saying, blessed are the single if you're going to live a happier life. Now, that's not some self-empowerment thing where you're like stronger alone or you're strong and independent and don't need a woman, don't need a man. That's not what Paul is saying. In fact, it's almost the opposite because he is saying a single person is happier not only because they don't have the same anxieties as a married person does, but because they can live their lives completely dedicated to the Lord. And you say, that sounds like a bunch of church mumbo-jumbo. How does following Jesus produce such happiness? Well, let's think about what gives us happiness now. Right? If you've never considered this before, realize and recognize that you are constantly worshiping, whether you're religious or not. You're constantly worshiping. You are looking for things in your environment for affirmation, for trust, for joy, security, and identity. We say to ourselves, when I have X, I will be happy. And most of the time, we trust the wrong things, and that makes us miserable. That's why we get angry when our sports teams lose, because we expect a joy from them, and we've got nothing but pain and sadness. It's why our lives feel empty when work, though we are getting promoted, though we're getting uh, higher pay, it's not providing us satisfaction. It's why we get resentful when our kids turn out differently or act differently than we planned because we made their future part of who we are. And that's why our world and that's why our world seems to fall apart when our spouse doesn't come through for us because we've made our spouse, though they've proven themselves imperfect, we've made our spouse our source of joy and comfort. We are professional worshipers of unstable, fallible, fallible things. We are professional worshipers. And Paul's point here is that you will be happier if you get all of your focus off of those things and on to the one who does not fail and does not leave or forsake you. You get to dedicate all your time to Jesus. And if you're in the Lord Jesus through faith, then let it be known you're already married. That's part of the beauty of the gospel that Christ has said, I'm going to take you as my bride. And Jesus is the best husband or object of worship that we could ask for. See, Jesus doesn't just give us flowers. He made them. Jesus doesn't just give us chocolates. He sprouted up the very beans that produced him. Jesus does not just simply wipe our tears when we cry. The Psalms say it keeps them in a bottle. That's how dear you are to him. He doesn't just come when you call him. He says, I have never left you nor forsook you. But above all, he doesn't just say, I will die for you. No, he actually did. Jesus doesn't just say, no, I'll cover you up for your mistakes. No, I have erased them with my own blood. He doesn't just say, I'm going to go and buy you a house someday. No, he has ascended and says, I am preparing a place for you. That's our husband. And a day is coming, believer, single or not, when by God's grace, you'll get to walk down the aisle right at him. Be dressed in a white robe of his righteousness, not because of anything you did, but because you trusted in him. 
and you get to marry him and be with him forever and ever. In the cross of Christ, God has proposed to us. You ever thought about that? He's asked you to marry him. So to the non-Christian here today, let me ask you, will you say yes to that offer? Jesus has done everything necessary to bring you to himself, to make you happy in him. And he's the best friend and the best spouse you could possibly ask for. So would you put your trust in that sin-bearing Savior? And to the believers are here, I challenge you singles, or the widows, or those who are just engaged, and you have control of your passions, would you consider staying single? Not because Paul is locking you into that life, but because he says you would be happier if you do so. And finally, to the married people who are among us, the Bible says you now walk, for better or worse, with divided interests. So the question for us this morning is, is our God plate still spinning? Is it still, is that gospel of grace still as precious to us as it once was? Is it still surprising us, hitting us, giving us joy? And if not, may we repent and go back to our first love. It's no sin to get married in this life, friends. If there's one takeaway, I hope, I hope you hear that. It's no sin to get married. Marriage is a wonderful picture of our relationship with God. History is going to end with a marriage celebration one day. But friends, if we go to a high school reunion or a family gathering or to church and we hear somebody single, may we not see that as a curse. We would be happier if we remained single because we would know in a much more real and an unceasing way the committed, faithful, passionate, deep love of Jesus Christ, our best husband. As we come to the table this morning, let me pray uh, before we do that. Would you bow your heads? Father, I thank you for these brothers and sisters. Thank you for this church that you have established. Thank you for building up these people in love for one another. I pray that that would continue by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, I pray for those who are hurting for a variety of reasons. Maybe they're single and unhappy about it. Or maybe they're married and they're unhappy about it. Would you comfort them in this season? Would you pull them close and remind them of your grace and mercy in Jesus? And Father, if there's anybody here thinking, man, I've, I've abandoned my first love, would you remind them of your grace and goodness as you are the God who sees us coming from a long way away and you're filled with compassion. God, we love you. May we never abandon you. In Jesus' name, amen.